Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. So uh, to the listeners, a bit of a comedy break. Um, when I had to run this solo, uh, Kimberly, I, I was so scared. I was like, I have no one to confirm that they can hear me. So I, I gently asked the community members before uh, putting everyone on mute. I was like, someone just unmute and say, you can hear me. So good to have you back, my friend. You're, you're always a blessing. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks, you. Um, and as you all can tell, I, I know we sent out saying we're going to have the famous uh, Dr. Z, Dr. Jonathan Zellman on with us today. Uh, apologies, we're going to have to uh, reschedule him. So, and he, he's very transparent about this, and he said, please tell the community. Uh, he's recently had some surgeries, and today was a bad day where he's going to go back in and see his physician. Um, so, you know, we, uh, we all need to put ourselves first uh, when it comes to health. Um, so I imagine uh, I told him, listen, we'll tell the community, and we'll keep you in our prayers to continue to heal. But he's excited to return and come back. And next, thank you all for joining today's call. As Kimberly mentioned, you all are our front line. And how much of a difference you are making, let me tell you. Last week, I was on service again in the intensive care unit. Not the COVID unit, the intensive care unit. And the reason for not being in the intensive, in the COVID intensive care unit is that it didn't exist. We have one critically ill COVID patient who survived. We, we got the patient off the breathing machine, and that's it. But ladies and gentlemen, we are doing so much better than this time last year. Uh, my friend Kimberly recognizes, uh, you know, uh, the stories I would tell her and so forth, but it is night and day. And I say this lovingly because science and medicine, we can give certain requests and recommendations but at the end of the day, it's people understanding those requests and recommendations and helping other people understand those requests and recommendations. And that's you all. The success we had in the ICU intensive care unit last week was not Dr. G's success or my colleague's success or my nursing success. Those low rates right now coming into our hospital is your success. So thank you so, so much. With that said, we're still in the pandemic and no one has declared it officially over. So let's stay grounded with some of the information. We'll go over the numbers. We'll go over the vaccine rate for the U.S. And I'm going to go over briefly about the booster shots. And then, Kimberly, I know we have a list of questions to go over, so I'm excited about that. And to the listeners, please recognize that's why we devote this hour to kind of a Kimberly and Dr. G variety hour almost. The last month, right, the last four weeks has really been so much coming out with CDC updates with vaccine updates, with booster conversations, that while we love our guest hosts coming in and sharing something unique, we do, we're trying to keep up with information for you all as well. And keep in mind, many of you listening are the COVID liaisons for your community. Right? So you're joining these calls that's the update, and that's what we want to make sure we provide you with today. So, Kimberly, sit back as I go over the numbers, and then we'll get to the questions briefly. So where are we with COVID numbers? Globally, we are at 
in regards to deaths, we are globally, we are at 3,719,867, giving us a mortality rate in the world at 2.1%. In regards to here in the United States, we have 34,175,501 cases with deaths at 611,630, giving us a mortality rate of 1.8%. In the state of Maryland, we have 460,339 cases with deaths at 9,417, giving us a mortality rate here in the state during the pandemic of 2%. Now, with that said, you were, you know, one of the things that we discussed was to get out of this, immunity would be a huge help in order to get us through this. And so that's what I want to be able to bring up because we need some silver linings to show to us that, hey, we are emerging. We're coming out of this. So here in the state of Maryland, we're doing pretty darn good. We're almost at one out of two individuals being fully vaccinated. Right now in the state of Maryland, we are at 48.4% of individuals fully vaccinated. And we're going to go over what that means in a second. In the United States, about 50% of the population has received at least one dose, and over 40% are fully vaccinated, 41.2%. This is amazing. This is unbelievable, right? And the, the, the power of the vaccine, just go into your local hospital and just see how well we continue to do, right? And I always tell the community the barometer to tell us how well we are doing it's not the quantity, it's the quality, how sick is the community. And all you have to do is pop into your local hospital and you can see that happening in real time. Now, the one conversation piece I wanted to bring up, while the vaccine is great, the virus continues to spread. Here in the United States, we are leading almost globally. Um, there are other countries that may be doing somewhat better, but we're doing great. We, we can easily be uh, contested that we're doing well and we are leading in many ways the vaccination rates. This has seen a, a large drop in new cases and especially hospitalizations. If you don't allow the virus to spread, if you don't allow it to spread, guess what it can't do? Yeah, you're probably thinking to yourself, Dr. G, I know it's not going to infect people, cause health issues, or even lead to death. That's true. Also can't make more mutations or variants, right? Keep in mind, a mutation to a virus is analogous to a child to, for a human being, right? The mutations are its offspring. And the majority of mutations aren't a big deal. But if you let a virus stay around for a while, right, a virus's kind of evolution is, is much faster than any uh, uh, well more organized living being like a human and so forth. And so the variants that the virus has put out since the original one found in Wuhan it is highly concerning, you know, in the sense of has it deviated enough away from the original strand that we need that we may need boosters. Well, the CDC to simplify the new mutation names that are concerning, they began to dub them with Greek letters. So uh, you're like, oh, Dr. G is always back to Greek alphabets and, and Greek language. So I got excited since I know the Greek alphabet, but right now the the variants. The ones that are concerning the most, especially, is the Delta variant. 
The reason for that is, at least from the Pfizer vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine can have almost 100% effectiveness against the original uh, Wuhan strain, 100%, especially for those 70 and older. With the Delta strain, doesn't look to be as good. It gives you some protection. All the vaccines will give you some protection against the more novel variances. may not be nowhere close to 100%, as the original Wuhan one, but definitely still, because remember, the vaccine's purpose is to keep people out of hospitals. You may catch a bad cold, but it won't be life-threatening. So what we suspect, and what a big paper came out this week, published in Lancet Suspects, is that, you know, while the U.S. is succeeding, that's great, and a few other countries, you've got to keep in mind it is a pandemic. So another country's failure is actually going to impact everyone else. Because if a virus stays alive and well in those countries, making more novel variances, we're, we're a global community. People will travel. And someone may bring in that new variant into the U.S. again. So the concern right now is how to make sure we can help stop the spread across the world in order to stop more mutations from coming about. But until then, what the paper alluded to was that we will likely need a booster by the end of 2020, uh, 2021, by the end of this year. So many of you were asking, would this become like an annual thing, like the flu? Still early to say, right? Needing a booster doesn't mean it's going to become annual. But, you know, right now the steps look like they're going in that direction. We can stop it. We can. So all we got to do is, you know, Kimberly, maybe we have to take our, our, our weekly show um, to our international stage uh, so we can get out more information. But that's it. That's, that's the big update I wanted to provide before we go over these questions. The conversation about boosters, I'm feeling a notion from Dr. Zunnelman, whatever we say may continue to change. I, I, for one, was definitely hopeful back in January and February that we may not need it. But with certain countries uh, seeing their rates of the cases go high, allowing for more variants to come out, it is likely, especially if those variants ever find themselves to our shores, may likely mean that we may need a booster. Keep in mind, all the vaccine researchers and scientists, they are studying that right now so they can provide the most adequate booster if we should need it. So more to come, but I wanted to plant that seed. The biggest changes we're going to see a lot moving forward is about how to continue to protect ourselves. But don't keep in mind, we are doing so much better than we were a year ago. So congratulations to everyone. Kimberly, my friend, I think we're ready to jump into those community questions that have come up uh, during the, uh, uh, since the last time we were on. Are you ready? I'm ready. Thank you. So you, you had, Do you have your coffee with you as well? i got to ask, Kimberly. i, I got to ask. I already had the coffee. Now I have my water. Um, so my voice is good. So um, you had mentioned that Maryland is, 48.4% fully vaccinated. Can you explain what fully vaccinated means? Yeah, so I'm going to give you two definitions of what fully vaccinated means. And I say this lovingly because one is easy to track and the other one is more of a medical standpoint and what that means. So fully vaccinated from what we are keeping track of with these numbers that we say means that someone's received the appropriate amount of doses of the vaccine. So if you did Johnson & Johnson, you got one shot, boom, you're fully vaccinated. 
if you are doing Pfizer or Moderna, until you get the second shot, you're not considered fully vaccinated. So from a kind of an epidemiological standpoint, right, those, those, physicians, those scientists who track and public health officials who track the numbers, fully vaccinated to them just means an individual receives all the appropriate doses for the vaccine. I will also add the medical definition of that. And this one is not going to be popping up in your statistics, but it means fully vaccinated means you got all the right doses, right? So maybe it's one for Johnson Johnson, or maybe you got two for Pfizer Moderna, and then it's two weeks later, right? Because with about two weeks after your uh, last appropriate dose, then we think you have formed enough antibodies quantity that are going to be protective. That's the quality part. So that's what we mean fully vaccinated from a medical standpoint. That in of itself doesn't appear in the numbers because once you get your second shot, then we document you as fully vaccinated. That's what we report. We can get more granular, right, more into the weeds where certain patients that we know, even if they've been fully vaccinated, meaning they got the one shot Johnson Johnson or the two shots from Pfizer Moderna, they may not have mounted an appropriate response. Those patients don't know who they are. Um, they could be patients who received transplants or are going through chemo or are on uh, medications for their autoimmune disorders. So those patients talk with your healthcare professionals. We, there's a colleague here at Hopkins who received a new heart after his second dose of Pfizer. It's a public story, by the way, so it's out in the news. He took blood, they checked his levels, and realized even with two shots, still didn't mount enough of a response. So he got a third shot of a vaccine to boost it up a little bit more. So Kimberly, you asked a great question. The public health definition, which is meant to stay simple, means you got all the shots you need for Johnson & Johnson or the Pfizer or the Moderna. The medical one gets a little bit more chaotic. So I would just touch base with your healthcare professional if you feel like you know, you carry a pre-existing condition that may cause you to not mount the aggressive response we need. But the medical definition is it's two weeks after your last dose and it's someone with a properly working immune system. Does that, does that help answer the question, uh, Kimberly? It sure does. And actually, as you're talking, I was thinking, um, you know, there have been a couple reports about um, uh, folks maybe accidentally receiving um, extra doses. What happens to the body if you did get an extra dose? So if you got an extra dose of the vaccine, nothing life-threatening will happen. Really, the, the bigger issue is that you just continue revving up your immune system. So you'll continue just not feeling well. So Remember right now with Pfizer and Moderna, the whole reason why we split these doses up in a kind of a three- to four-week interval is because early in the vaccine research trial, phase one, when we gave that dose all at once, people felt miserable. Right? Keep in mind, we're revving up the immune system. The, the analogy I always like to use is think of exercise, right? If I made you go to the gym for two hours, you're going to be very tired. You'll sweat, your muscles will ache, you'll get short of breath. 
If I extended you another hour, so now you have to do three hours of padded soup, your muscles will ache more, you'll sweat more, you'll be more short of breath. You may begin to dislike Dr. G at some point. So Kimberly, if someone got a third dose, nothing life-threatening, you're just raising the likelihood that they may feel miserable for a short period of time. Does that, does that make sense, my friend? It does. Thank you for clarifying. So going back to the booster shots, um, and it may not be well known at this time, but if you say got the Pfizer vaccine, would you have to get the Pfizer booster? Um, or do you think it would matter if you stay with the same manufacturer or not? Yes. So for those who felt, uh, for those who felt, hey, um, I'm part of this cool group of Pfizer and you know, little Jets and the Sharks action was happening. I'm hoping our listeners catch that reference with the Jets and the Sharks West Side Story. If not, let me, let me help. You don't have to stick to the same group. So if you get Johnson & Johnson and the boosters of Pfizer, that's fine. Right? Because so, the booster is made a little bit differently to do just that. It, it's going to imply that you have some baseline immunity regardless of which vaccine got, got you that. So you, you don't have to be like, oh, I can't remember. Is it one shot or two? So don't worry. Right? So if, when the booster comes up, in what I've been told, right, and I say this lovingly, so I'm hoping in, when we do need boosters, if they say, no, no, something more unique has happened, they'll have to let us know. But for the time being, the information that's being put forward to us is it doesn't matter what you had before to need a booster. Back to you, Kimberly. Thank you. And, and also, I want to go back to, um, you had mentioned Pfizer and 100% protection against the Wuhan, um, some protection um, against the dental, uh, Delta strain, but what about Johnson & Johnson and Moderna? Uh, how are they working against um, other strains of the virus? So the, um, the challenge that we have of, of research, it just depends who's keeping up with the research. So. The reason why I can speak about Pfizer and Pfizer is because there was a Pfizer and Pfizer-sponsored study who reviewed its efficacy against these other strains. Pfizer and Pfizer, the, the challenge it ha they both have, right, so being first, it's good, right, for a lot of reasons. It also does carry a curse. The curse that Pfizer and Moderna had was that they were unable to test themselves against the more novel strains, right, because when they came out, it was just the Wuhan variant. That's all they had to worry about. Johnson & Johnson came out much later. So when it came out, it was working against the Delta strain already and against the Beta strain. That's the one down in South Africa that's always caused a lot of harm. So the Johnson & Johnson found itself very effective against the novel variants that were already coming out. And we're going to probably see the same thing when AstraZeneca submits its paperwork, right? You may be like, oh, you're, you're fourth. No one wants you. No, no, no. AstraZeneca might be the best one of all of them because it can sit back and say, we've tested ourselves against the variances. Moderna right now is doing its own studies. I haven't seen them come to fruition, but I don't suspect it will be any different. I say this lovingly about Moderna because Moderna's technology is similar to Pfizer's, right? So if it works for Pfizer, I'm going to make the assumption it works for Moderna. The, the, honestly, listeners, the big difference between them, it's not the technology that it houses, it's literally how they packaged it. One has a little bit more calories than the other one. One has a little bit more fat than the other one. That's it. That, it it's literally like trying to figure out what's the difference between a Chevrolet and a Ford. They're both cars, like, at the end of the day. 
So what works for Pfizer, I'm, I'm going to make a strong assumption it's going to work for Moderna. Pfizer is testing that out in real time just because it came first and never really had the chance to test it against variants. Johnson Johnson has those studies, meaning its original submission to the FDA already covered that it works fine against these variances. Does that help, Kimberly? Yes. Thank you. Um, so now I want to move on to um, a topic with a lot of questions involving uh, children and adolescents. What are your thoughts about children get vaccinated? Um, there's, you know, uh, a lot of talk about children not getting or contracting the virus or not having severe symptoms and not quite understanding the reason for having their children vaccinated. Can you talk about that? Of course, of course. So we actually had one um, scientist here that was that brought up a very good point, that the category of, of a human that gets the most studied for vaccine purposes has always been kids, right? And if you think about it, well, you're like, well, yeah, kids go in for their vaccines, right? We're trying to give them a boost to their immune system so they don't fall susceptible towards the diseases that robbed many kids of their lives in the early part of the 20th century. Right? I, so I came on into medical school at such a unique point with these uh, physicians with, a, with gray hair teaching us, we'll go over these horrible cases of measles, mumps, rubella, robbing children's lives in the 60s and 70s. Now, it, that's the only place you can read about it, in the textbook. We don't see these cases anymore. So the vaccines were always extensively studied in children in order to try to get us, uh, help them survive those first five years of life. After that, your immune system really becomes much more robust and you're good to go. The vaccine for COVID took a different approach. Since children didn't have the most dire consequence of it, then we emphasize, let's make sure it works for adults first. And plus, adult vaccines are, there's uh, one of our uh, uh, scientists who came on made it clear there's a lot less red tape for adults. For children, um, the delays that are set, put in place or just for research, not just for vaccines. So it's getting a parent's consent, getting a child's consent to some extent as well, or at least establish that they understand what's going on, and then other legality and paperwork. Adults, we don't go through that. It's just one consent and that's it. So the question gets asked, what about children? Should we get that? I'm going to have two answers for that, one for in the moment and one potentially to help you for the future. For in the moment, Every individual who gets the virus will play a role in creating a new variant. So even if you get it, you're like, I'll be fine. I'm going to survive. I work out. have a great diet. COVID won't cause harm to me. That's fair. But keep in mind two things about catching the virus. If it does no harm to you, you may still be spreading it to others. Why? Because remember, this predominantly spreads when you have no symptoms. And if you have no symptoms, you're like, I'm feeling great. Let me interact with this family or that family. And at that moment, you continue to spread this virus. So that type of spread, you may have created your own new variant that could spread it to someone else. So a big reason that we encourage as well our young citizens, our young children, to, to, step, to step up along with us, because if they should ever catch this variant, they're very likely to spread it to someone else a new variation and keep 
the mutations alive and well. So meaning every person who's not vaccinated can play a massive role in keeping this virus around and around where it can create more and more mutations. So that's one thing that I would emphasize for the time being. If we really want to put an end to the variances, enough people need to have those antibodies to protect us against the virus and help stop its own transmission. And keep in mind, again, kids, this is what we do. We, we try to give them as much of a strength in their immune system so they can survive as many things. This one's a little different. It's not so much for survival. It's more so to put an end to a virus that continues to plague adults. But, Kimberly, here's the part that I said at the second answer. It's going to be more for future. One of the physicians we're going to try to have one in June, we're just trying to work with her schedule, is a pediatric critical care doctor, meaning she's like me, critical care, but she works with children. And the alarm she's been sounding since April is that last year this time she goes, we didn't really even see any children admitted. Maybe a few with that post-COVID-19 complication, but not a lot. Right now, she is seeing an uptick in children being admitted to the intensive care unit. Not passing away, so that's great. We're able to keep these kids alive. But young, healthy children who still got very sick, sick enough that they needed life-saving intervention. So another reason to strongly consider helping the children get vaccinated is to potentially prevent a variant in the future that will be more targeted towards children. I think that's, that's where a lot of scientists, including myself, have held our breath. We're waiting for that shoe to fall when someone releases this variant is deadly for children. And if we hear that, we're going to really begin to escalate getting vaccines done and so forth. So, Kimberly, that's what I would say to any adult. Any human being, anyone who has the potential to create a variant, having immunity is going to be protected for them. Kids, I love them dearly, having some of my own. But I love them dearly because they are by far the most researched in the uh, group of populations around vaccines. So we, our vaccine technology loves children. I mean, the first, last thing I'll say, sorry for rambling, the first U.S. person, United States individual, who received the closest to a modern vaccine, the closest to a modern vaccine, happened in the state of Maryland. 1801, Jane Smith to a seven-year-old girl, cut her arm and put pus from a cow with suffering from cowpox went to her in order to inoculate her, to vaccinate her against smallpox. This was done four years earlier in England to another young child, eight years old. But vaccine, you know, I'm not trying to be that extreme, but vaccines for the most part have always been well-researched in children to protect them and give them a fighting chance of survival. So I, I would strongly encourage, you know, make the right decision for yourself. But I think children, part of this conversation is important to help stop the variants now, and especially to help protect them in case there's ever a mutation that targets children. Over to you, Kimberly. Hopefully that was good without rambling too much. And my friend, if you if I ever ramble too much, just grab that cane and pull me to uh, stage left. <laughs> oh, you're good. Thank you. And we've always, you know, tried to um, remain transparent on these calls. And I just want to share. So um, my son, um, I was anxious when they got the Pfizer got approval for 12 and over. Um, he got his shot, and he's actually getting his second dose next week. And and just to share to put you know some ease with folks that he did have some mild symptoms, um, that um, but it only lasted uh, maybe half a day. 
So I, as a mother, feel very, um, uh, I'm just much, I feel much better knowing that he is at least partially vaccinated and looking forward to his second shot um, next week. So I just wanted to share that with you. Um, thank you, Kimberly. No, and I know our listeners always appreciate when we can add some humanity to this. So thank you, my friend. Um, so going back, so we addressed, um, you know, some of the questions involving children, but one of the biggest concerns that we have uh, heard from many of our community members with the recent guidelines, and it can get very confusing, you know, if you go from Baltimore County to Baltimore City to different areas that have different guidelines, and more and more people, as I have even witnessed over the last week, are, are going around indoors and outdoors without masks. As of today, June the 4th, Dr. G, what are your recommendations for those that are fully vaccinated? Should they continue to wear masks? Should they feel comfortable not wearing masks? What are your thoughts? Uh, all right, so Dr. G, okay, let me, let me answer this first as a lung doctor. It's going to carry its own bias hear me out. Keep in mind, coronavirus has plagued two other regions of the world in 2003 and 2013. Post that, in addition to other reasons, right, from air pollution and so forth, there's, there's been a great cultural acceptance of wearing face masks when going out into the public. Not by everyone, but enough people, um, especially in Southeast Asia. You know, they would tell me, like, if I have a cough, I'm going to wear a face mask. That's just not polite now to cough in public, meaning the cough in public to them has been the new cigarette smoking in public for two decades. As a lung doctor, I fully support face mask in public in the setting of high air pollution day, or if you, if you have a new cough, sneeze, fever, wear it, right? The, the amount of low cases of RSV, of flu, is astonishing. We have never seen these numbers so low. We went months in flu season with zero cases at Hopkins. Never seen that before. And it wasn't because there's was a you know, vaccine helps, don't get me wrong, but a lot of it just had to do with people weren't sharing germs. And if you're out in public, face masks help that. So came really my first answer to that is I hope face masks, and I find them trendy, I think they're fun. You can show off a little bit of your personality with them. I have a cool one that I like to wear sometimes as well, you know, be fashionable. But I do hope the face masks do find a cultural acceptance to be worn, especially for the reasons I just mentioned. If you don't feel well, you know, going out and sneezing in public, you know, missing that elbow, now you've got the face mask to help you. So I'm hoping people can take on a self-conscious approach to say, I don't want to spread my germs to others. But now let's talk about where we're at now, fully vaccinated. Well, we have found out about the vaccine is that cumulative actually does help prevent transmission. We strongly understand that if you are, even if you caught the virus, if you have no symptoms, your chances of even spreading it are close to like one or 2%. So this is where the CDC felt comfortable saying, oh my gosh, if you've been vaccinated and carry no symptoms, right? Because remember, if you, if you do catch COVID and you develop the mild cold, not life-threatening, inconvenient, yes, but not life-threatening, you know, stay home and keep to yourself. If you have to go out into the public, wear a face mask. But if you've been fully vaccinated and say you caught COVID, never developed symptoms, 
your chances of spreading it are almost 0%. So that's where the CDC felt comfortable in saying, drop the face mask then. You, you can go back. And as Prince said, Prince uh, the musician, part of like it's 1999. And I'm identifying that year because it was pre-COVID and trying to sound comical. So with that said, people without a face mask, without a vac people with a vaccine can drop the face mask per these findings. So that's great. That's good science. But how does that relay to actual in-the-world situations where we are at, knowing that we're still not even one out of two Americans fully vaccinated? So this is what I would say. As much as I love my brothers and sisters throughout the U.S., as a former president once said, President Reagan, I believe, trust but verify. So what I would strongly encourage is continuing to wear that face mask, especially since, you know, showing off a vaccine card, it probably isn't where we're at at the moment. Um, so that I would still encourage. I know, Kimberly, you and I have done a lot of church uh, COVID conversations with churches, synagogues, mosques, temples, and we still encourage, right? Because there could be many people, for instance, who haven't been vaccinated in that community, right? And so we want to be cognizant and protective. And my fear, to some extent, too, is if they see an adult with a face mask, you don't worry, why haven't you gotten vaccinated? And that, that becomes a little bit more personal. Could have been a personal reason to a medical reason. So I would still encourage the face mask right now as we continue transitioning into normalcy. I do think certain things can be eased a little bit because um, a face mask, remember, captures the most contagious parts of things that we breathe out. So I do think we could probably, you know, stay closer than six feet. I know you and I have discussed that as well with congregations, but I think the face mask is a great last resort, and until enough people are vaccinated, and by enough, I really mean, you know, 60, 70 percent, then I would still go about with the face mask. So that's my recommendation is coming both as a lung doctor, very biased. I get to plug the face mask. By the way, I've been plugging face masks since I've been a lung doctor. I just find a lot of value in them from stopping the spread of uh, airborne germs. And I would still continue I, uh, plugging it away from the vaccine standpoint. So those who are vaccinated, if you're about to have a cookout with people that you know have been vaccinated, even if they have kids, if you if all the adults have been vaccinated, you can drop the face mask. You can enjoy yourself. If you're going to go out to a Costco or BJ's or a Target, I would encourage the face mask wearing, you know, you may flash a vaccine card if you want, um, but from my standpoint, I, I think it's good camaraderie still, um, and uh, it, it showcases that we're still trying to be protective. Even if we're allowed, we're still going to be protective until enough people are vaccinated. That's what I would recommend, Kimberly. Does, it, does that help? It does. Thank you for, for sharing your um, suggestions. And, you know, regarding that, um, and I believe that the latest recommendations or guidelines still request that we wear masks um, in more public crowded spaces such as schools, uh, transportation, airplanes, buses. And one of our community members um, is still, you know, worried about, um, you know, traveling in those um, atmospheres. And I don't know if uh, they're at full capacity or not, but what do you think about folks um, particularly airplanes, um, re even wearing masks, and if they're at full capacity, what are you, do you have any concerns with that, particularly maybe with some of those longer flights? 
So, uh, yeah, so I, I still carry a big concern. Um, I, I will say a couple things about plane rides, though. Um, plane rides have been shown to be, and a lot of it has to do with the ventilation system in plane rides. Uh, planes have, by far, the best ventilation systems as they circulate new air pretty darn quickly. Um, so I, from that standpoint, I would take, you know, especially like if you're going to be traveling with kids and planes, I know they're going to at some point be at full capacity. The middle seat's going to drop off at some point. <sighs> Every individual, I would say, you have to weigh the risks and benefits. I would still encourage a face mask wearing during that time as I, I think it, it, it's, again, you're still protecting yourself, right? You don't know if someone has on board, you know, they're coming from a different country that is carrying a weaker variant, a, a variant that could be weaker against the vaccine. So flying, I would encourage face masks. I would try to encourage keeping your distance as much as you can. If you're going to be in part of a plane that's going to pack everyone, then, again, weigh the risks and benefits of that type of travel, and I would strongly commit to, all right, let's wear face masks now. And hopefully airplanes are recognizing that. You're going to get a lot of international travelers. They may be coming from countries who have a higher proportion of these variants that we still don't know if it will be covered by the vaccine. So I would still take, I would view the plane riding to our listeners as the last thing to go from a pandemic standpoint. Like I would, from a public health standpoint in a pandemic, I'll still try to do your best of being protected there, wearing face masks and so forth. Does that help, Kimberly? Yes, thank you, Dr. G. And, and one last uh, question I want to ask on behalf of our community. Um, do you have any data on the transmission rates of vaccinated people not showing any symptoms? but um, have COVID? So your question is, people who are vaccinated can still show symptoms? Is that the question, Kimberly? Um, yes. And are you seeing any people, um, you know, whether hospitalized or I guess you might not know, but is there any percentages of those folks that are still contracting the virus even after they've been fully vaccinated? Yeah. So I, I've actually seen two cases so far of people who got the vaccine and got COVID, mild case at home. I have not seen, nor have my colleagues at Hopkins, and keep in mind, we see a lot of patients. The only patients coming into our hospital this far with COVID are, have been 100% unvaccinated. That is a statistic still ongoing. We have to recognize that the vaccine didn't prove 100% effective for all age groups against developing life-threatening COVID. Pfizer and Moderna overall was 94-95%, and Johnson & Johnson was 85%. So you probably will still get a few people who've been vaccinated, you still end up hospitalized. To date, I haven't seen those, but the vaccine trial showed us just that. Oh, on a side note, the 12 to 15-year-olds for Pfizer was 100% effective. So, so that age group with Pfizer and the 70 and older in Pfizer were the only age groups that were 100% effective of preventing hospitalizations from COVID um, if you've been vaccinated. I've seen, personally, two patients who've gotten vaccinated and picked up the virus. Um, with that said, they just had a, I mean, they had a mild case and um, they were gonna come to see me in clinic and they checked off the boxes. And so they're like, oh, you gotta get a COVID test. If you're having any symptoms, they're like, why should I? I got vaccinated. And it, it reminds you, the, the vaccine's intention is to prevent, let me put it this way, it's meant to prevent hospitalization, right? It's meant to prevent you from getting really, really sick. 
is really, really sick, you could be hospitalized. So that's what I would uh, fully recognize. You can still get the uh, vaccine and develop a really frustrating cold, right? Yes, that could still happen. Don't curse the vaccine because without it, you may have been much sicker. So does that help, Kimberly? Yeah, thank you. So um, before I um, share one other thing, is there any closing comments or anything else you want to share with our listeners? Kimberly, I, you just said those comments. I'm going to look at the time. I, By golly, I love our time together. I can't believe it's flown already to um, quarter to 12. So listeners, hopefully you guys have been enjoying these updates, and we'll keep them coming as they come forward. My closing comments honestly just circles around the full recognition that we really are at the end stages of the pandemic. And the, the last part to get us really over it, at least in the United States, is to assure as many people have immunity as possible. And the, the immunity of a vaccine is one that's been tested, researched, and so forth. There's no doubt of how good it can be. If you have any underlying conditions that you are concerned it may mitigate that vaccine, then talk to your healthcare professional. Perfectly, that's, that's awesome. We are almost there. We are almost there. Talk to your community as they raise questions, concerns, thoughts. Email Kimberly and I. We're happy to help you. We're happy to help give you the information that you feel like you need to help your community stay at ease with making a, a public health decision that will help end this pandemic. That's where we're at. We're all getting a taste of the world again, pre-pandemic. It feels good. We're getting there safely. We haven't seen grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles in years or years in a year. We're getting there, I promise you. Just continue talking with Kimberly and I. If you have questions, concerns, we're here to help. We're almost there. And I'm going to be saying that every time we're on these calls, we're getting there. We're getting there. So keep up the good work. Kimberly, that's good. That's my closing comment, my friend. It's, um, you know, it's, it's always amazing to work with these uh, community individuals who are focused on recognizing they're on the front line and helping us out. But, my friend, I turn it over to you for your last closing thoughts before we turn it over to our, our amazing chaplain. Dr. G, and I appreciate you uh, providing us all with an update this morning. Um, so I wanted to close with how can we promote vaccinations in our community? And I was doing some research on this, and the Centers for Disease um, Prevention, uh, CDC, has a toolkit on their website to help organizations share clear um, and accurate information so that our community members are educated about COVID-19 vaccines. They can raise awareness about the benefits of vaccination and also address common questions and concerns. So I'm going to share that website. Um, there's a lot of different information, um, even particularly specific groups of people, such as adolescents, um, older adults, healthcare personnel, people with disabilities, people who are pregnant, um, and others. So I will share that information. And if you have any questions, feel free to um, reach out to me. And before I turn the call over to Reverend Johnson, please note that our next COVID-19 Community Partners Call will be held on Friday, June the 18th at 11 a.m. And our guest speaker, our returning speaker, will be Dr. Jonathan Zettelman, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease here at Johns Hopkins University uh, School of Medicine. And now for those who would like to stay on the call, 
Reverend Johnson will offer closing thoughts and a prayer. Thank you, and good morning, Kimberly. Can you hear me? I can. Good morning. Great. Thank you. Good morning, and thank you, and thank Dr. G, as always, for uh, such excellent information and such great care for our community. So as we close today, I've noticed, as I'm sure many of you have, that some people seem to be emerging from our collective quarantine with anger and unfettered aggression. I would not begin to claim to know the cause, but it seems that there is some underlying narrative that something has been taken from them, denied them, or has unjustly caused them a loss. Perhaps this is a mass form of mischanneled grief and anxiety stemming from unresolved feelings of isolation and oppression, as well as the actual losses caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Mix in the various social concerns and the current ongoing uncivil political discourse in our nation, and it seems to be the perfect firestorm for igniting inhumane and uncivil behaviors. We can choose, however, to enter the post-pandemic quarantine period with a sense of gratitude. Gratitude makes us focus on what's right rather than what's wrong, what's good rather than what's bad, what we've gained rather than what we've lost, where we're heading rather than from whence we've come, and future promise rather than past pain. I encourage you, whenever you find yourself sinking emotionally or spiritually into those dark places, to just try a dose of gratitude. And as commended in Holy Writ, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praise, think on these things. Please join me in this prayer. Holy One, we turn to you in this moment with gratitude in our hearts and thanksgiving on our lips. We have survived and for some even thrived despite the many dangers, toils, and snares we have endured over the past year. We have so much in this season of graduations, vacations, and long-awaited reunions for which to be thankful. Lord, help us each day throughout our day to focus on our personal and collective reason for gratitude and then to live out our lives in peace, showing grace and mercy to others. In your kind name, we gratefully pray. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Johnson. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.